Recording has begun. Dope. So you're back to have your ears blessed. Oh, we're starting. I guess. Are we? I don't know. Great. We're, no, we're starting. I just yeah. felt like that could be an intro. I oh, don't that's know. A, that's a great intro. It's yeah. kind of threatening and intimidating a little bit. It's like, mm-hmm. oh. Oh, you're back. So you're back. Yeah. You. Okay. But to be fair, I don't think we have enough listeners to justify intimidating our listeners. <laughs> We're growing. We're growing. We are growing. Cool sight to see. It is. Yeah. It actually is a lot of fun. So, so uh, thank you so. for those of you who are new and listening. Yeah. And for which those is, of you that are sharing the podcast with others, that's awesome. Do it more because that allows us to grow. And the more we grow, the more better we feel about everything Mm -hmm. and it kind of gives us a sense of fulfillment and entitlement and lets us know that we're better than normal people who don't have podcasts i mean i i bring it up every chance i get when i'm talking to someone just to make them feel inferior i I have have a podcast podcast. and we have 22 listeners Mm -hmm. what that means 22 people think that what we have to say about just random crap is important enough for them to dedicate an hour ish of their time to, to pay attention and listen to. Or they're losers and have nothing better to do. Yeah, that too. It is one of those two things. Let us know which one you are. Email us. At? <laughs> you know that you know. <laughs> I don't. It oh, is. So unprofessional. Look, th- see, this, this is why we don't have more listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Email us at midnightnarwalpod at gmail.com. Do it. MidnightNarwalPod at gmail.com. Email us anything. No, no, not anything. There are so many things <laughs> I do not want you to email us. Oh, man. But yes, we would love to, to hear from you. If you have topics you think we should cover, or if you're mad at us for talking about children dying in chimneys, these are things we want to know. Actually, I don't care if you're mad about chim- children dying in chimneys. It happened. Get over yeah, it. It did. And we made jokes about it. I did not know how callous I came across until I listened back, but that's okay. They're long dead. It doesn't matter. No one remembers their names. Nope. I'm just being more callous. I shouldn't. Somewhere there, you know, there's a society in London that is dedicated to remembering the fallen children chimney sweeps of the 1700s. The FCCS, uh, the Fallen Children Chimney Sweep Society. That's what we need to begin. Start that Facebook group. And then then email us about it so Mm -hmm. we can join it and talk about it. We'd love to. Uh, So as we move into our topic today, um, I do just want to go ahead and give a shout out to my sources because I realize I hadn't done that for the last few episodes we've recorded. Mm -hmm. And uh, Oh, wait. Another thing we haven't done yet. Uh, Oh, it was an intro. Yeah. (laughs) Well, hello and welcome to yet another episode of Ear Blessing that we call the Midnight Narwhal Podcast. My name is Andy. And my name is James. We're your hosts. For the evening. Yeah, and now I'm going to hit you with some theme music before Andy takes it away uh, with this story. There once was a podcast. Two friends came together and started a podcast. Called the Midnight Narwhal Podcast. (laughs) Well, that's a good start. Yeah, great start. Uh, So anyways, my sources for this episode are Wikipedia, which no surprise there. Actually, this is probably out of all episodes I've done, I've used Wikipedia the least Mm -hmm. by far. Like it was a very minor 
minor source this time. Did a lot from the Washington Post, a lot from OutdoorHub.com, MuckRock.com, and the VintageNews.com were my main sources uh, for today's episode. All right. Our story begins on December 23rd, 1985, which okay. coincidentally, and this is not the reason why I chose it, that is one week after I was born and made the world a better place. Nice. On that day, a hiker in the Chattahoochee National Forest in North Georgia stumbled upon the dusty body of a black bear. This bear was surrounded by 40 open containers, and it seemed to have been dead for some time, and its face was frozen in a pained and crazed expression. Open containers of what? Oh, they they were empty. Okay, so just, but just like containers, like? Yeah. Like a giant Tupperware tub, or like? Not exactly that. Okay. And we'll get to it. Okay, yeah. Because in order to understand what was really going on in that forest, we need to go back in time and to Kentucky, which I feel like anytime you go back, go to Kentucky, it kind of feels like you're going backwards in time. Is that yeah. a fair assessment? A little bit. I got I got family in Kentucky. Yeah. I'll be gentle. Yeah. I well, my dad, my dad's from there. He doesn't listen. No, he doesn't. He yeah, no, he doesn't. He might in the future, but currently hi patrick yeah. but in 1944 so we're going back towards basically the end times of world war ii mm -hmm. andrew carter thornton ii born in 1944 was raised on three main stud which was a thoroughbred horse farm in the beautiful bourbon county kentucky andrew was the oldest son of carter and peggy thornton and because of the wealth of his parents and certainly Horses and horse racing is a very important thing in Kentucky because they have this whole derby thing. You might have heard of it. Oh, yeah. He was kind of automatically guaranteed induction into the Blue Blood Society of, hi there, we're uh, really wealthy over here in Kentucky. And if you ain't like us, we don't want you around. All right. So just get ready for your thick Southern Kentucky accents because they're coming. <laughs> All right. He was educated at Sayre in Lexington, which was a private elementary school. Ooh, swanky. My dad's from Lexington. Really? Did yeah. he also attend Sayer? No. Apparently world-renowned. Really? Not really, no. I just okay. made that up. But <laughs> in 1944, or the, I guess the 1950s at this point, it was a very swanky sort of, sort of thing. Um, but then after elementary school, he attended Suwannee Military Academy, which was a prestigious Tennessee institution, which now is not called that anymore. They dropped their whole military thing. But that, that, that school shared its campus with an Episcopalian school. And they actually, weirdly enough in the future, as in today, they actually merged both of those schools. And so I was like, military Episcopalian school? What is this? But they've, they've recently dropped all their military programs. So that's now just an Episcopalian school. Now, unlike many children of privilege in the 1960s, he was not pulled into the rebellious sort of attitudes and styles of the decade. After he graduated Sewanee in 1962, he joined ROTC and attended one semester at the University of Kentucky. Go fighting... Wildcats? Wildcats? Yeah. Look at me. I got it. He quit school to join the Army and often spoke of his training as a paratrooper for the Army's 82nd Airborne Division in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Nice. He was extremely proud of that, which, to be fair, if you're a paratrooper, I'd probably be talking about that a lot, too. 
Yeah. Uh, he talked a lot about being awarded a Purple Heart for service in the 1965 U.S. invasion of the Dominican Republic. Okay. Up to this point, I'm getting like Forrest Gump vibes almost. Um, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know if he was dumb, but like, I mean, he was in school. It was a nice school, but he like, then he, he was in college and then he was in the military and he wasn't like real caught up in the whole hippy dippy thing. And yeah, a little bit of, little bit of a uh, Forrest Gump vibes. Yeah. yeah. Now Thornton's life began to go in several different directions. Our boy, Andrew uh, made a second stab at college in 1966 but dropped out after a year and he decided to start working for his father, training racehorses. Cool. Going into the family business. Yeah. Around the same time he met Betty Zyring and uh, she was like, Oh, look at him with the horses. And uh, at that point he was beginning to think about becoming a policeman. And she was a university co-ed, um, a known beauty from Shelby County, which I'm not even sure where that is, but they mention it like it's a big deal. Like, ooh, Shelby County is full of beautiful women and she's a beauty among them sort of thing is how everything. So I was like, okay, never heard of it, but whatever. Now we know. But she says, I fell in love with him as a romantic hero. He was recuperating from wounds he'd received in the Dominican Republic, where he had really come into his own as a paratrooper. <laughs> <laughs> Your face during that whole accent was so glorious. Yeah. It's only slightly offensive. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You can't tell me that's not how wealthy people in Kentucky in the 1960s spoke. Sure. Like, you know, it's true. Yeah. They still speak that way as much as they can. Sure. They sure do. In July of 1968, Andrew and Betty were married. Good for them. Aren't we happy? Yeah. A month later, he joined the police force. Cool. He was a trained warrior, a very efficient killer, trained by the U.S. government. He went into the police force so he could do battle. He was the happiest when he was on the cutting edge, when he was really testing himself. This is Betty Betty talking? said. Yes, that's, that's his wife. Those are her words. Her words, an exact quote from wow. her speaking of her husband and why he joined the police force. To kill. Well, he was very efficient at it. Yeah, the military makes you <laughs> makes you one of, like, yeah, the military makes you an efficient killer. And he was a paratrooper, which they're kind of the elites yeah. of the elites. As a policeman, he changed his name to Drew. I guess because he wanted to be like cool and hip or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> I just like, think of the office. I'm Drew now. No, I'm not calling you that. <laughs> no, there's no way in the world he didn't try to go by like Drewski. Mm -hmm. And I think people were like, yeah, no, not you. That doesn't work for you. Yeah. My grandfather, because uh, my name is also Andrew. My grandfather growing up always called me Drewski. Drewski? Drewski. Like Drew, S-K-I. I've heard of calling beers Brewskis. Uh-huh. Is that like the is that like a play on words for that? I or? think so, yeah. Okay. Huh. Like growing up, I was like, oh, that's my cool name for my grandfather. But I never shared it because I knew it wasn't actually cool. Like I never yeah. like did anything with it. So I was like, that was just between us. And now it's between us and I guess like, 25 other people, yeah. but that's okay. But as a policeman, he arrested University of Kentucky students who were protesting the Vietnam War. And yeah. in the early 1970s, he became a member of the Lexington Police Department's first narcotics squad. Nice. All right. Yeah. Busting some heads, 
Yeah. Collecting some dope. Yeah. A narc. Yes. He worked with the Drug Enforcement Agency or Drug Enforcement Agency, Drug Enforcement Administration's regional mm-hmm. office in Louisville. And uh, former DEA agent Larry Larkin says DEA worked with Drew on many occasions in narcotics and sometimes on a weekly basis. So he's very much got a lot of interplay going on. Like he's not actually a DEA agent. He actually is on the police force locally. Yeah. But But, um, as they're beginning that whole narcotics thing and really figuring out a lot of this stuff and how intrusive it is, he's working very closely with feds. And that's, that's Louisville, by the way. Like, and I only, cause I, I would say Louisville, like. I said Lexington. Did no, no, I? no, no. You, you, oh, the, the office in Louisville? The office, yeah. What did I, I say? Was, well, you said, well, you said it just like that. Uh-huh. And my, that's how I would say it. And I was always corrected growing up. My dad's like, it's Louisville. And Louisville? Yeah. Like, like just. Louisville. Like, sh- put it in as little, in as little amount of syllables as you can. Louisville. Louisville. Yeah. That's, Louisville. That's what I've always like tried to do to say it right. Another DEA agent, Robert Brightwell. Uh, he worked a lot with with Andrew. I mean, I'm sorry, Drew, on narcotics investigations uh, in the early 1970s. He described him as a 007 paramilitary type personality. All right, an adventurer driven by adrenaline rushes. Cool. So no red flags there. No, none whatsoever. That's what you want in your cops, especially your drug enforcement cops. Betty went on to describe Drew as a loving, supportive. And gentle husband. He loved me, she says, but he resented having a wife. Well, yeah, you know, being out in the field, (laughs) you know, it's a lot of uh, temptation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the fact that she's saying loved in the past tense makes me think. Well, I mean, he's probably dead anyway if he was born in 1944. But Yeah, I I can tell you he's dead as of today. He's dead. Yeah, he's dead. Yeah. Yeah, I won't read into that, I guess. But. You can read into it as much as you want. I don't care. But you're you're just guessing, stabbing in the dark. Yeah, right now. Yeah. Because I don't know this person. Like, you you, you got another one that I didn't know, so. Baller. There you go. At the very, genuinely at the very end of this thing, you might recognize something. Okay. But uh, maybe not. All right. As a policeman, Drew would meet with mafia hitmen from Detroit who had contacts on him, um, just like as he's getting more and more involved and and being a narc, trying to figure out more of what goes on and all that whole drug trade, uh, he ended up having to deal with a lot of super shady characters. And, you know, certainly the mob played a role with with drugs. And um, so he's kind of figuring out life with them. Um, And Betty realized that it wasn't a life that she felt comfortable with. No, of course not. At least they don't have kids. You know, mm-hmm. that helped. that would throw a whole other thing into it. It's a huge wrench. Yeah. But she said that the closer that Drew moved towards a James Bond character, the less she was able to relate to him. She couldn't live with the secrecy and danger of his life as a narc. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason James Bond's not married. I mean, he was married once, but she died pretty quickly. I mean, it's also all fake. Well, I mean, just like those types of people. Like, yeah, I know it's all fake, Andy. <laughs> like... <laughs> Not a child. What do you talk? You like you're talking about like, well, he was married one time and just like seamlessly went into it like we're discussing another totally real person. Well, the character James Bond <laughs> was married one time on His Majesty's Secret Service when he was played by um George Lazenby. The only time he was played by George Lazenby. 
anyway move on just i will keep on keeping on keep on keeping on uh she uh betty claimed that that drew had trouble reconciling uh many of the paradoxes of his life so loves his wife doesn't like the fact that she's his wife (laughs) maybe he doesn't love his wife then (laughs) that's would be how i would look at it yeah (laughs) you know like like genuinely her statement of he loved me but resented having a wife okay i can't reconcile that i'm sure he had an even harder time reconciling that yeah that'd keep me up at night (laughs) yeah but then at the same time he's out having living a very very dangerous life sure as a narc when just genuinely trying to be on the forefront of developing that whole unit as Mm -hmm. a police officer um, and very, very dangerous, but then coming home and trying to have a normal life with somebody else. That's, that would, I feel like that would be another paradox that you would have to try to try to balance out. Yeah. Well, I mean, and even not narc stuff, like military, you know, like Mm -hmm. there is a gap there. Once you've seen stuff, like it changes (laughs) you. I say stuff like in stuff could be anything, but like, for example, if once you see people get shot regularly and it just becomes like a part of your day that messes you up and it, and you don't go back. Like you are forever changed. It's sad, but it's true. But yeah. Sorry. Yeah. My brother-in-law is, is a police officer. He's now on the SWAT team and, and really done a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, I got to do, I did like a ride along a couple of years ago with him and it was, it was pretty cool. Like I, I learned a lot. I let me understand a lot more of what police officers have to deal with yeah. um, kind of on a daily basis. And I think it's important to, to try to always do best to kind of understand people in situations. So obviously policing is is a big topic in our nation at this time and has been for the past few years. And in some ways, rightly so, that is, is something that we should constantly be looking at and wondering about and questioning because I feel like we should be doing that with all forms, all things that the government does should be constantly looking at and, and pushing back towards. But at the same time, a lot of people criticize and, and say things without even beginning to even begin to want to understand or try to understand kind of a different side and a different viewpoint. And it's not that I have a, it's not like I'm against police. I'm not, I learned a lot and it was, it was fascinating for me just to, just to spend, I mean, literally it was 12 hours that I sat in a cop car and I mean, we didn't even do anything crazy. It was, it, I still experienced and, and learned a lot. And I've heard a lot of his stories about what he goes through and things that he has seen. And yeah, it, it does change it. But that's also why you really don't want someone who's a 007 paramilitary type personality doing it because they're already kind of out there. Yeah. All right. So sounds like there's some drama at home, or at least there will be. Because even when he was at home, and of course, this is during Vietnam, that he is watching on the news what's going on. As, as a vet, he's very interested in, in what's going on. As someone who's very paramilitary and very proud of his service, he's very interested in what other guys in the service are doing. And so he would t- come home, tell her horror stories about the U.S. military operations in Vietnam. You know, he had a lot of trouble trying to, once again, reconciling the paradoxes. He is someone who very much, he loved his country and couldn't understand a lot of the things that he saw his country doing in Vietnam that he felt were wrong. Yeah, That just kind of consumed a lot of things for him. A lot of his thought process was what's going on. 
I'm, this is not okay. And it did lead to their divorce in 1970 and neither one of them ever remarried again. Wow. So they were only married for two years. It wasn't for long. Dang. And they never remarried after that? Neither one of them ever remarried. And no kids? No kids. Wow. She did say that they kept in touch and that he always made sure that she had whatever she needed, Um, but they just couldn't be together anymore. I mean, I hear that and I like I, divorce is so strange for me because especially when I hear that, because I think of divorces as being this messy, awful thing. And I hear him say like, hey, like everything you need is going to be taken care of. Like you, there's still care for that person there, I guess it's a, at some point. On some level, yes. On some level. Yeah. And not all divorces are in, in this whole big bitter dispute and slamming yeah. doors and throwing knives at each other, certainly. Sure. But they do all end up with there's pain there and there's hurt there and it's stuff that's not been reconciled and fixed and it's it's always disappointing um but through a lot of this disappointment and everything else going on with with drew's life um he decided to attend law school at night and he actually earned his law degree in 1976 good for him he joined the law firm of an old friend harold sloan but he actually just never practiced law (laughs) like he joined the firm but didn't do anything with it uh he really was all into his being a cop dude and that that pole persona likes the uniform likes the swagger likes the power well it's kind of you can't be the cop and the judge well i mean and i know judge is different than a lawyer i i feel like there's some conflict there a little bit yeah like some judge dread sort of stuff maybe in his free time he was a daring pilot he was a master of martial arts who boasted of killing a German shepherd with his bare hands. Okay. Now, and I, I don't think I've talked about it on this podcast, and I might have talked to you previously about it, but during my ride along with my brother-in-law, uh, we actually spent two hours, and this was literally in the middle of the night at like 4 a.m. We went to a local park, and one of the other guys on duty was the canine unit. And so he brought out the canine dog and we literally did like training in a park in the middle of the night uh, with this canine unit, which was honestly one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life. Yeah. Like if you've never been around a police dog who are pretty much all German shepherds, those things are honestly terrifying. I can imagine. That dog was 115 pounds of solid muscle. Oh yeah. Just, and I mean, I, I love dogs. I love, I want to pet dogs. I see Mm -hmm. the dog. I get excited. I saw that dog and I wanted to get back in the car and not get out again. Yeah. I'd feel more comfortable with probably a loaded weapon pointed at me than a German shepherd like that in the same room as me. Yes. They're, that's part of the point. Like the goal is to look and just look and like ooze intimidation mm-hmm. you should be afraid you should be scared oh uh, because yes. one german word and you're like your lunch like mm-hmm. you are yeah because they are all trained in german they don't the dogs don't respond to anything in english which of course because it's german when the handler's talking to the dog it sounds even scarier because <laughs> german is a mean scary sounding language yeah and so it's i mean it is absolutely and- terrifying it's mean and scary until it's literally translated into English because it's another thing German is, is insanely specific. Mm-hmm. So like the word for 
like hot dog is like meat tube in a bun, <laughs> like literally. <laughs> but they say one word and that's the German word for it. Like that might have not been the best example. But like I had a professor in, in uh, my sophomore year of college who was a missionary in Germany. And he would tell all these stories about like trying to tr like trying to learn the the language, speaking it, but speaking it in such a roundabout way that everyone would be like, oh yeah, you're an English you're an English speaker because you're a lazy German speaker. It's all about <laughs> it's all about efficiency in the German language. Like they don't want to like mess around. So German's weird. Yeah, it is. So is English. So yeah, weirder, but less scary sounding. Very, very much so. Uh, but I say all that just to say, like, killing a German shepherd with your bare hands, oh, depending yeah. on the German shepherd, is no small feat. I mean, also, it was a puppy. Mean. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, mean, it could have been a puppy he drowned. Who knows? Yeah. Um, he was also an expert skydiver, adrenaline junkie. Yeah. And he was famous among jumpers for what they call pulling low, which is opening the chute at below 2,000 feet. Dang. Okay. So not only is he into skydiving, he's into pretty much the most extreme way of skydiving. I mean, I'm hearing all this and yeah, like I am getting like the James Bond analogy now. Yeah. Like, like he, I'd almost say more like Jason Bourne at this point. I don't know. It's just, they're all insane. But if I was building like a spy or like a paramilitary guy, like I'd want him to have kind of all these abilities. All right, yeah, some like I need him to be really comfortable and knowledgeable about weapons. I need him to uh, be trained in multiple different martial, art, martial arts. I need him to be a pilot and a police officer and know the law and be able to skydive. Like I, I, I'm seeing the analogies come together now. To his friends, Drew was a man of loyalty, religious go. conviction, enchanting charm, keen intelligence, and supreme self-confidence. So what's wrong with him? Because I know you're probably going to ruin all this for me. Like, what? One big twist. That is so unlike me. That's what you do every every podcast you host. You know. You, you set me up to, to like a guy or to think <laughs> some guy is not a cannibal. And then you, <laughs> then you drop that on me right as i'm like okay yeah yeah i i understand things so well to his enemies or people who just didn't like him or he didn't like he was ruthless egotistical and amoral okay. and he was driven by an ego so fragile that he overcompensated with macho manism so they feel like he's compensating for something machismo yep Machismo. Yeah. He subscribed to a code of independence. For him, perfect society was one in which individuals perfected their survival skills through self-defense. Now he sounds like Dwight Schrute. <laughs> Anticipating a nuclear holocaust, he stockpiled paramilitary weapons, freeze-dried foods, and gold coins. Dwight Schrute and Ron Swanson. Yep, that's... He wore camouflage fatigues, bulletproof vest, swastikas and talked about eyes for eyes and teeth for teeth. Oh, okay. So he's an anti-Semite. Actually, as far as we know, no. But he wore swastikas. He did wear swastikas. That's clearly anti-Semitic. Yes. However, there's nothing else in his life that would lead us to believe that. Oh, God. Literally, I, as far as I could tell, because I, I, I did a lot of looking to try to figure that out, and it seems like 
because I mean, especially in the 60s, 70s, in terms of like the weird paramilitary groups and stuff. And I mean, we still see it in paramilitary groups today. There are emblems of Nazi symbols that still exist. And it, a lot of it is because it looks intimidating. You know, like yeah. I saw, like I, I guess within the last two months, a paramilitary group that was protesting something somewhere. And they had like the two, the double lightning bolt the SS, SS emblem. Yeah. Um, that they had that because it, it's in an intimidating sort of thing and now of course yeah it's intimidating because it was literal nazis yeah and stop it i don't think this i mean i'm not trying to defend wearing a swastika or the <laughs> or the ss symbol in the slightest i mean that's what i'm getting from you like that's what i'm hearing yes yes and, and i know at some your, point i'm sure i'll be crucified your complexion and blonde hair isn't helping you either <laughs> <laughs> i can't help my genetics. I would never wear a swastika. I would tell everyone to not wear a swastika. All I'm saying is for this one individual, other than the swastika, I could not find anything that would actually make him an anti-Semite or even someone who would side with the Nazis. Got it. That's all right. literally all I'm saying. Anyone who <laughs> takes more than that out of this, you're doing it wrong. New listeners of the podcast, we typically don't talk about swastikas and Nazis uh, on most of our episodes like this. But No. So Drew considered himself a freelance military advisor of sorts. Okay. And he sided with anti-communists around the world. The Salvadorian government, Nicaraguan Contras... South African industrialist. And to be fair, those none of those are good regimes. Mm. They're all got a lot of what we would today call human rights violations going on. <laughs> yeah. Drew became increasingly paranoid. His isolated farm called Triad, he surrounded it with concertina wire. Do you know what concertina wire is? Is it that like, I'm imagining barbed wire, but it's like the curly cue barbed wire. Yes. That has like razor blades on it yeah it's it's uh, that curly yeah. wire that you see on top of like fences around jails yeah is the easiest way to describe that so he surrounded his already isolated out in the middle of nowhere farm he surrounded it with coils and coils and coils and coils and coils of that concertina wire hmm. he set up barracks and dug trenches wow and of course all this activity led to his farm being the subject of aerial and ground surveillance several times yeah. following reports that he was operating a guerrilla warfare training camp for mercenaries. Lovely. <laughs> Here we go. Drew consistently stated that nothing illegal occurred on his farm. Mm -hmm. For years, he pursued his passion of preparing himself and others for Armageddon. Nothing good can come from this. No, like, no it never does. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what happened next? What happens next? Well, his problems began in 1981 mm -hmm. with the arrest of one of his Kentucky connections, Bradley Bryant. Oh, man. Much like Drew, Bradley was a native son of what is sometimes referred to as the horsey set, um, which is basically they got money and horses in Kentucky. Like there's this whole sort of aristocracy of Kentucky wealth that horses is kind of their thing. Yeah. So they're part of the horsey set. And he was the grandson of a Lexington mayor. Um, these two were lifelong friends. They traveled in the same social circles growing up and both attended Sewanee Military Academy together. Oh, wow. Bradley was the best man at Drew's wedding. So they close. Bradley or Bradley? Bradley. Okay. His last name's Bryant. So Bradley Bryant. 
Yeah. BB. We can call him BB. BB. That's what I'm calling him from now on. Got it. Until I inevitably forget because I don't have it written down that way. Double B. All right, go for it. In 1977, Bradley Bryant, BB, formed a private security company called Executive Protection LTD. He cultivated and recruited police from around the United States. Drew resigned from the Lexington Police Department that year and joined his friend in this new venture. Oh, wow. In 1981, when the trouble began, Bradley was arrested in a hotel in Philadelphia when Maeve smelled marijuana smoke coming from his room. Okay. In his possession at this time was a cache of semi-automatic weapons, disguises, more than 10 fraudulent Kentucky's driver's license, and $22,000 in cash, which in today's money is almost $67,000 in money. His notebook contained the names and addresses of several Lexington men, including his good buddy Drew, as well as references to planned operations with names such as Bluefin. Operation Bluefin? Yep, Operation Bluefin. Okay. And all this was discovered because someone smelled some weed? He was in a hotel, and the mage like, um, we smell weed. So they called the cops, and he was arrested. And they found all this stuff. It's funny that today, like, if a maid smelled weed in a hotel, she would just be like, oh, that sucks. And then just keep moving on. Like, It's going to need extra air freshener once they leave. Yeah. No one cares at this point. You live in the times you live in. It's not like you Precisely. Like, man, I'll just... <laughs> Sucks to sucks to suck if you're caught with some marijuana in the 80s. It's just funny to hear that that's what took him down. Exactly. Now, nowadays, nowadays, it's just like a nuisance. It's just like, oh, great. Like, Can I move smoking. rooms? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Neighbors are lit right now. <laughs> yeah. BB initially told police that he was involved in a clandestine CIA assignment. Okay. He later retracted from that story, but he did continue to create the impression that he had kind of had the permission or was sanctioned by the CIA in terms of what he was doing. I mean, if you're going to play that card, play that card. Like, don't don't recede that card. Like, oh, no, don't back away from it. Because there is a point when it's like you if you if you are confident enough which, I mean, these guys should be oozing confidence. If oh, yeah. Like, yeah. And the cops are lazy enough. And, like, they don't want to keep digging. They might just have to take your word, especially in the 80s. Like, there's, you know, it's the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like, that's believable. You can't recede it once it's come, once you've put it out. Absolutely. You can't be like, oh, no, actually, no. But, oh, just yeah. kidding. Ha, ha, ha. Within days of BB's arrest, Several federal agencies joined the investigation, and a few months later, 25 individuals were indicted in Fresno, California, and charged with conspiracy to import and distribute marijuana and to steal government property from the China Lake Naval Base. Okay. Drew was one of nine men from Kentucky that were named in that indictment. Wow. And that was handed down amid hints that a larger drug smuggling conspiracy existed. Drew personally was charged with piloting a DC-4 plane loaded with tons of marijuana into the Lexington airport. Drew remained a fugitive for several months. But after U.S. Customs agents seized a 56-foot converted minesweeper that was carrying 1,500 pounds of marijuana off the Louisiana coast. Wow. 
And then they discovered that a machine gun on board belonged to our boy Drew. The search for him greatly intensified. He was finally apprehended in North Carolina while wearing a bulletproof vest and carrying a pistol. And U.S. Marshals transported him to Fresno for his arraignment. While he was there, he posted $75,000 in cash and a $1 million personal surety bond, um, which was secured by his interest in three racehorses. Wow. So dude's got money because that $1 million is worth $2.7 million today. And he had, well, today would be $203,000 in cash that he gave yeah. them as a bond. Dang. He returned to Kentucky to await trial. And on February 27th of 1982, three days before he was scheduled to show up at the hearing in Fresno, he was shot twice in the chest at close range as he was leaving a Lexington restaurant. By whom? Well... The bullets didn't penetrate his bulletproof vest, and police decided that the shooting had been staged by our boy Drew to try and persuade the judge that his life would be endangered if he would be put in jail. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, if anyone's going to stage a shooting... It's it this done. one. Yeah, but also... No, 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 but also... Just wow. <laughs> All right, yeah. Just know we're headed down the rabbit hole right now. Lovely. Oh, no. Great. Great. I don't not like that. nearly as much as last time. Great. Okay, cool. No lizard, no lizard people. in this Nope. Great. Not mentioned. I mean, I'm sure they're actually here, mm -hmm. but we don't know it. Mm -hmm. Drew ultimately pleaded no contest to the marijuana conspiracy charges, and he received a six month sentence at a minimum security facility in Lexington. Now, there's in a lot of things that I read, there's a decent amount of speculation that he was given such a light sentence and released so quickly so that his movements and contacts could be tracked. Buy it. Once again, I feel like it's important to remind you that this was the man who started narc agencies for police departments and worked very closely with the DEA. So he knows how the sausage gets made. He knows exactly yeah. how it gets made. And here he is because as the profile we set up, he's always chasing that adrenaline rush. Uh -huh. And if you're bored with being a cop, Time to be a robber. Time to be on the other side. Yeah, but... So yeah. This is our boy. All right. In the three years following his conviction for that marijuana thing, Drew was sought by different jurisdictions for questioning, hmm. usually in connection with what police termed vendetta deaths, with all of the victims were connected to various enterprises that drew had going on so some for example the first one gene berry was a florida state's attorney and he was murdered at point blank range on january 16th of 1982 when he opened the door to his residence and uh gene had successfully prosecuted one of thornton's fresno's co-defendants so yes. got that other dude locked up for a long time yeah gets murdered straight bullet to the chest Oof. as he opens his front door dang robert s walker was a witness against Drew in the case. He was found strangled in a swamp in Tampa. Are all of them in Florida? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, not all of them. Three yeah. of the four that I'll be reading off to you. Okay. Um, the man who informed customs of Thornton's involvement with the Louisiana smuggling vessel, he had his throat slit in Miami. Oh, that's my worst way to go. I hate that. And the death that best summed up all the contradictions that Drew had going on with his life was the death of Harold Wade Brown, 
who was the former head of the DEA office in Kentucky. For years, Harold was probably Drew's closest friend. Well, I mean, he was until he was found shot to death in his Louisville home, um, which was called an suicide. But the reason why we don't think it's a suicide was because in the early 1970s, when Drew worked very closely with the DEA, he got to know Brown and was like, sup, Harold, we're close now. And Harold had a forced resignation from the DEA um, in 1981 that came just six months before his retirement would be Mm. possible. um, And he was forced out. Turns out that the federal grand jury in Fresno with that whole marijuana thing, when they were investigating, they found that... um, that Harold had done everything he could to stop the probe into that DC-4 that Drew piloted. So he mm. was covering up for his boy. Okay. Failed and seemed like he got off for it. Yeah. A friend of both Drew and Harold said they were cowboys. They shared the same mentality, the same paranoia. They weren't in it for the money alone. This guy who, like, he was someone who talked to reporters, but he was like, yeah, I don't want my name to be known. And I think for pretty good reasons at this point. Yeah. He's, he claimed to have known them for a number of years. And he watched both of them go from one side of law enforcement to the other. Actually thinks it's almost reasonable that they did. Kind of like trying to justify it. And his hypothesis is that neither of them really left the DEA, but they became smugglers to try to infiltrate the narcotics organizations. They're still, they're still you know, they're still on the good guy side. They're just deep cover. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Because he's like, you know, either that way on both sides, they're working for America. <laughs> Remember, Drew is a patriot. Like uh-huh. he, he, is, he is someone who today he'd be like, yeah, I'm a patriot. I love this country. And like that would be what people know about him is I'm a patriot. But also he's one of those super crazies out there. A fellow police officer um, who had worked with Drew, he describes him as an edge walker quotation marks, basically a thrill seeker motivated by danger. As a policeman, Drew could walk the edge only so long before it became routine. Drug smuggling was a natural transition for him because as a cop, he was a Starsky and Hutch type of cop. He drove fast cars, popped in and raided people. He was as flamboyant in his life as he was in his death. (laughs) Oh no. This is foreshadowing. Oh no. Oh no is right. (laughs) An FBI agent who investigated his death, who asked to be kept nameless, said that he was a little boy who never grew up. On the morning of September 11th, 1985, in Knoxville, Tennessee, an elderly man looked out of his window and discovered a dead skydiver on his gravel driveway. Splat. At the scene, police found the body of Drew Thornton, age 40, clad in combat fatigues, a bulletproof vest, infrared night goggles. He was carrying two handguns, a stiletto knife, the keys to an airplane, a money belt with $5,000, six grenades, survival food. Oh, and uh, 34 kilos of pure cocaine strapped on the front of him and a malfunctioned parachute strapped on the back. Oof. Okay. Not long after his body was found, his plane, his personal private plane, because even though he was a cop and there's not much money there, Mm -hmm. he came from money. Sure. And then drug smuggling has more money. Mm -hmm. Um, He had a twin engine Cessna 404, which is kind of a luxury plane there. His plane that had been left on automatic pilot was found crashed into a ridge in a remote area of the Natahala National Forest in North Carolina. The plane was described by a friend of his as a smuggler's dream, 
because of the long range fuel tanks that made it perfect for a trip from the United States to Columbia. Nice. Three days later, two U.S. Forest Service officers discovered three duffel bags with markings identical to those found on our boy Drew, and they were filled with 99 more kilos of cocaine. Okay. They were attached to a cargo parachute found in a mountainous region of the Chattahoochee Natural National Forest on the flight line between Atlanta and Knoxville. <laughs> oh, no, I just remembered, <laughs> <laughs> I just remembered the bear. <laughs> to, did the bear find some cocaine? Well, before we get there, oh. <laughs> Drew's death provided the first major clue in a complex cocaine smuggling investigation that involved the FBI, the DEA, and police in Tennessee and Georgia. Weirdly enough, the death of Drew was quickly listed as an accident. Mm. despite the question of what happened that made him lose his primary parachute because turns out the parachute that was actually on him was the backup. His primary one had just blown off. It was evidence in the fuel tanks of his plane that there was sugar in the fuel tanks. Uh Um, So there's a lot of questions in terms of what actually happened up there on that plane. No one really knows. What about the black box? I don't know if they had those then i don't know um this is 1985 they realized something something big's happening here looking into him was just the beginning of the investigation drew was clearly part of a domestic drug trafficking operation and turns out that it was a big one because it tied him back into an operation known as the company which was tied to the chagra brothers jimmy chagra was one of the largest drug traffickers in the western united states And he actually had, fun fact, commissioned the first assassination of a U.S. federal judge in the 20th century. Wow, that's cool. Jimmy's criminal operation was so large that he personally, as an individual, accumulated an FBI file of just over 65,000 pages long. Dang. That ain't a file. That's a whole filing cabinet. Yeah. And then some. Betty, because, you know, she's still alive. I don't know if she actually she is today or not. Uh, She said that Drew thought of himself as a purist, an innocent. She remembers that over lunch the previous summer, she had asked Drew how he justified the violence and the paradoxes in his life. And he responded that he meditated regularly, at which time he entered a world beyond good and evil. He told her that he, Drew, had a hero consciousness and that any other time in history, he would have been a, a Genghis Khan a ninja or a samurai, hmm. some sort of valorous paragon of battle. Genghis Khan's not valorous <laughs> or, or a hero. <laughs> he pillaged and raped thousands of people. <laughs> what we know of Drew, does that not sound like someone he thinks is a, is a hero? Is a hero. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess, I guess not. I guess so, actually. Yeah. Betty said of Thornton's death, he went out like an Eagle Scout. He would have loved the concept of the warriors who fall from the sky. He died as he lived. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. People who didn't like him did not share this romanticized version. (laughs) Uh, To them, Drew was a cop gone bad. Uh Nothing more, nothing less. Uh, Sally Ann Denton, she was a very famous journalist. Um, She was the one who uh, covered a large part of his story in Kentucky and did a lot of the investigations after his death. Hmm. And actually, as it turns out, there's a lot of speculation that maybe he actually was helping the CIA. 
that with all his paranoia and everything else, like there's a lot of documentation that exists that's got lots of that whole like black mark redacted stuff. Mm -hmm. So you can't really see all of it, but there's a lot there that could mean that he actually wasn't a bad guy. The CIA is a weird organization, man. Oh like, yeah, especially in the collective like consciousness of of like normal Americans. Like mm -hmm. we don't realize just how secretive they are. Like FBI is one thing, but like CIA, dude. Like you don't just know people that work for the CIA, and if you do, then you're you're really too close. Like I would not feel comfortable knowing someone who's like, yeah. I work for the CIA. I would be like, okay, cool. I'm going to move and never talk to you again. Because I don't want you to slip up and say something and then have to kill me. Yeah. Because <laughs> at that point, they've already got a file on you. Like, mm -hmm. they've already, like, you're already in a file somewhere in the CIA. Like, you sure yeah. are. It really is. And, it's cool. and we'll never know no. what all went on with Drew. Like, no. we just won't. Nope. I felt like I should say that because there is there are people who make that argument yeah i don't me personally from what i read i don't believe that i believe he was a cop who went bad and lived for the adrenaline rush however working for the cia and infiltrating drug ring would also fit that profile as sure. well yeah i could see both ways i think he was i, th I think he was just bad can't prove it a news report from blue ridge georgia on december 23rd of 1985 reads a 175-pound black bear apparently died of an overdose of cocaine after <laughs> discovering a batch of the drug. The cocaine was apparently dropped from a plane piloted by Andrew Thornton, a convicted uh, drug smuggler who died September 11th in Knoxville, Tennessee, because he was carrying too heavy a load while parachuting. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation said that the bear was found in northern Georgia, among 40 open plastic containers with traces of cocaine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think you need to be an expert to know that that's a lot of blow for a bear to get his paws on. <laughs> that's a lot of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> Just like imagine how this went down. <laughs> There's a bear rummaging through the forest looking for berries bugs probably honey because i guess that's a thing for bears i don't really know and then suddenly the bear is raging through the trees <laughs> out of its mind on colombian stardust oh my and it's not even just a little bit this is not an eight ball this is an entire pool hall oh and it's pure bro it is it is pure super pure, pure. yet <laughs> According to the actual medical examiner who performed the bear's necropsy. <laughs> and His heart had to explode. And this is years later when they talked to him. Uh -huh. The memory of the cocaine bear was still very <laughs> fresh in his mind. <laughs> Memories of a cocaine bear. I would read that book. I would watch that movie. I would, yes, I would... I would will have see, that chance. I would go see that play. Yes. Oh my goodness. There actually is a movie being made about this. That's amazing. But according to that guy who did it's they don't call it an autopsy, they call it a ne necropsy. Um, he says its stomach was literally packed to the brim with cocaine. 88 pounds of it. He goes on to say. There isn't a mammal on the planet that could survive that, which yeah. leads me to think what on earth could, because if he's clay, like, he's like a mammal can't do it. Well, wait, not a mammal on earth. Like, does that include like, like a whale? 
I don't know. But that I'm going, makes... I want to see how much cocaine we can give to whales now. Well, yeah, see, that's what, like, when, when I hear there's not a single mammal on, like, that includes the largest mammal on Earth, which is a humpback whale. Blue like, whale. Or blue whale, sorry, yeah. And, well, well, I don't even, do you put the cocaine down the whale's blowhole? Like, is, in, is that what I don't do? know if they inhale, they do inhale through they that, They do, though. yeah. So they yeah. can snort it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, how thick of a layer of coke do you have to have on top of the ocean for it to just be able to come up and get a, get a line? Get a line of cocaine. <laughs> Oh my gosh. You know those Discovery Channel shows where they like stop Jap- the Japanese from like whale hunting? <laughs> like I I would I would go up against them to just give a whale cocaine. Like just just let me just give me one, guys. Just give me one. I just want to see what happens. Like <laughs> maybe that was Moby Dick's issue. Oh yeah. He was just he was pale. out of his mind. He was pale, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. I bet that's what it was. But the doctor, I guess he was a doctor. He went on to say, cerebral hemorrhaging, respiratory failure, hyperthermia, renal failure, heart failure, stroke, you name it, that bear had it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So everything exploded. Like (laughs) everything. (laughs) That bear... I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just imagining like you see the bear and like his his pupils just get huge. <laughs> he he's going insane and then all of a sudden he just drops like <laughs> just thud. Oh my gosh. However, this bear's body was apparently in good shape. So the examiner thought it would be a waste to have it burned. He made some phone calls, had it taxidermied by a friend, and then gifted the animal to the Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area. That's amazing. Cocaine bear sat on display in the visitor center for a while before mysteriously disappearing along with a handful of other artifacts. Oh, no. The stuffed cocaine bear switched hands a few more times after that, including being sold to country music legend Waylon Jennings. Waylon Jennings owned the cocaine he bear? He owned the cocaine bear. That is sick. That makes me love Waylon Jennings way and more. As of today, the bear has finally settled in the Kentucky Fun Mall, which is located in northern Lexington. And today's episode of the podcast is the insane story of Kentucky's cocaine bear, more famously known as Pablo Escobar. Oh my god. <laughs> and Escobar. that is why we talked about this. Just the name. <laughs> so that's the um insane story of Pablo Escobar. That's wonderful. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. I thought you would. I'm hoping it translates really well to the recording, but I just knew everything would pay off just for the line. Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar. That would, no matter how bad everything else was, that would win you over. Well, this is perfect. This was great. <laughs> so there's a twist you didn't see coming at I all. I love this. Yeah, this was awesome. <laughs> wow. Oh, that was awesome. That's a great way to start, to end my day. I was just afraid. I was like, okay, I've already done one episode that had a large amount of bear talk um, with it, with Hugh Glass. I'm like, I'm just turning, I'm slowly turning this thing into a bear podcast, <laughs> which we're named after water mammals. So mm-hmm. 
Thank you for sharing this story with me. Andy. You're so very welcome. That was awesome. And listeners, thank you for yeah. listening and hanging out with us. Yeah. Uh, thanks, please make thanks. sure that you email us at midnightnarwalpod at gmail.com. Do that. That is our email because we know it. We know it. Super great. Super good. We know that. Don't have to look it up. Ever. Nope. Not at all. So thanks. Yeah. This has been another episode of the Midnight Normal Podcast. I'm James. I am Andy. We'll talk at you next time. Don't do coke.